0: Genesis chapter 3 is where we're going to begin. And we're going to read from verse 7 all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 24. So Genesis 3, verse 7 to 24. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman." And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray. Father, humble us as we examine your word this morning, as we understand the the fall and its true meaning to us now knowing how far we've fallen from Your glory and how desperately we need a Savior. And humble us in such a way that makes us reach out for You in faith and in love and rejoice in the fact that Jesus has met all of our needs with His life, death, and resurrection. We pray this in Your Son's name. Amen. You recognize these words? Have faith in your dreams and someday your rainbow will come shining through. No matter how your heart is grieving, if you keep on believing, the dream that you wish for will come true. Sound familiar? How about this one? It's the circle of life and it moves us through despair and hope, through faith and love, till we find our place... On the path unwinding in the circle, the circle, circle of life. Those are not from the Bible. Actually, they're Disney songs. Some of your parents might recognize them. First was from Cinderella, and the second was from The Lion King. And you know what? They're just not true. Life's not a circle, dreams don't always come true. It's interesting how profound and meaningful those things can sound with really no substance whatsoever. But the truth is, and the Bible teaches us the truth, that we live in a wicked, fallen world ruled by sin and Satan. And it's all leading in one direction. To the grave. We're all going to die. And we're going to die because we have a sin problem. That's our true problem is sin. And it's not easy to prove, is it? If you take a deep look in your own heart, watch the news for five minutes, you tell me we don't have a sin problem. But even though it's easy to prove, it's really hard to accept. We live in a world where we're getting really good at denying our fallen condition and our sinfulness before God. Because we get distracted, right? We fill our lives with gadgets and entertainments and anything else that can take our mind away from our true problem. Or we just try to explain it away. Say it's just yin and yang. It's just the circle of life. Just good karma or bad karma. There's no good and bad. Light and dark. Just the way things are. Or we try to come up with solutions that can't really fix our problem. Can't fix our sin problem. That's why our bookstores are filled with hundreds of self-help books. And we watch TV and we see these religious leaders giving us techniques for meditation and promising our best life now. Or we get politicians who make outrageous campaign promises that I'm sure they don't believe are true. I mean, they they actually believe if they had a few more laws passed, they could reverse the fall themselves. Sure seems like that, right? Right? But none of these can fix the cancer that is eating away at our creation and ourselves. We don't need more time or more money or education. We don't need more laws or principles for living. The Bible is abundantly clear that the only solution to our sinful condition is a Savior. That's our only hope. We cannot fix ourselves. We are in desperate need of a Savior, of God in flesh entering into human history and solving this problem Himself. And that's what Jason so wonderfully set up for us last week. The first three chapters are abundantly clear. We need a Savior. Right? Because God made this world good. He created everything and He gave special attention to man as the image bearers of God. And He declared that it was good. It was very good. But we read that story and we look at the world around us and the question is, what happened? This, this is not good. Right? It's the same question that Israel was asking. Remember, when Israel first read this, they had finished wandering 40 years in the desert where a whole generation died off. And they were suffering. And now they're going to go into the promised land and try this again, facing those giants that everybody was scared about. And they're thinking, good? This? Something had to happen. And we find out what that was. In Genesis 2, God placed man in the garden and gave them one rule. Blessed them tremendously, but said, you see that tree in the garden? Don't eat of it. And the day that you do, you will die. And we all know what happened in Genesis 3. Satan comes into the scene and he doesn't tempt them on the quality of the fruit. He tempts them on the quality of God. He says, God's not looking out for you. God is a miser. He's holding back. In fact, if you want what you want, go and get it yourself. Take your life in your own hands. Be your own God. And the sad truth is they did what we all do. And Romans 1 describes very well. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator. And we've all fallen suit. And God has cursed this world, and the world is groaning under the penalty of the curse from the original sin. So the question we need to ask ourselves this morning is is there hope? We know this world is not as it should be. Is there any hope for fallen creation? And I'm here to tell you there is hope. But it's not from ourself. And before we need to see that hope, before we can see how glorious it is, we need to look one more time at our depravity. We need to see the depth of our depravity. We need to see how far we've fallen. The mess we've got ourselves into. And then we can see the abundance of atonement made in Christ all the work that God has done to save us from this fall to reverse the effects of the fall and bless us far beyond we were ever blessed in the garden so that's what we're going to talk about today the depth of our depravity in Adam and the abundance of atonement made in Christ and we're going to talk about these in four categories in Genesis 3 there are four broken relationships our relationship with God is broken, our relationship to other people are broken, our relationship to creation itself, and our relationship to even to ourselves is broken because of sin. So let's look at that together, and starting in verse seven, this is our relationship to God is broken, and we see this right from the beginning, right after they eat the fruit. Look at verse seven. "Then the eyes of both, Adam and Eve, were opened, and they knew. They were naked. Now we need to recognize here that they got exactly what they wanted, didn't they? They got to see good and evil for themselves. And the first evil they saw was their own guilt. They were not just God's children in the garden anymore. They were not in their loving Creator's hands. They were now opposed to Him. They were now rebels in front of an angry judge. And the first thing that happens is they realize they were naked. They'd always been naked, but now they feel exposed, they see their, their imperfection sown, and it's a very clear symbol that they're in trouble before a holy God, that something is not right, their relationship is changed. And look at how they respond. The rest of verse seven. They sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. Right here, we have the first attempt at works righteousness, right in the garden. I have a problem. I'm in trouble with the holy God. I know. Fig leaves. Right? I can just cover it up. He'll never notice. If I just do a few things, He'll be fine. I cover it up. It won't be that big a deal. Sad to say, they keep on hiding. Look at verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. You guys see the stupidity in that, right? I know. Let's hide behind the trees that God made. Let's let's hold the breath that God gave us and they won't find us. Right? Sin makes us do stupid stuff. Not to mention how prideful that is, right? They don't have a true fear of God. They try to hide from God. If they really feared God, they would know there's nowhere to go. God is sovereign over all of His creation. He's omnipresent. You cannot get away from Him. And instead of running to God in repentance and and for help, they hide. Something is tragically wrong with this relationship. The relationship that was loving and open and innocent with God is now broken because of sin. You know, we can laugh at their stupidity all day long, but we did the same thing, don't we? We spend our lives hiding our sinfulness from God and from other people. I mean, you guys ever thought why this place isn't packed on Sundays? Why any church for that matter isn't packed on Sundays? People don't want to have their sin exposed. I remember even in youth ministry of people that they would be coming to church every single week and all of a sudden they disappear. I come to find out later they've fallen into some sin. They don't want to go back and have their sin dealt with. And you guys know that temptation, right? Last thing I want to do when I'm sinning is go to a small group and confess. Right? Because, as John 3 says, people love the darkness rather than the light. Because their works were evil. We know we're guilty. We have shame, but we have the pride to think we can cover it up. I love what Mark Driscoll says about this passage. He says, "The rest of human history from this point forward is all about fig leaves. It's all about covering ourselves up." So I ask, "What's your fig leaf this morning?" That you didn't think you'd ask we asked that question this morning, right? What do you use to cover up your sinful condition to God and to other people? Is it gossip? Is it flirting with people? And you just think that as long as that person's not around, nobody knows. God knows. He hears us. He knows what's going on. Is it the Internet? I think the Internet is the biggest fig leaf of all. Not just pornography. We, we do try to hide that, right? We think that, okay, as long as I, I delete the search history or something, then nobody will know. God knows. There's everything that we're doing. But I'm not just talking about that. What about stuff like Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or other books, right? What we we try to sanitize our life through those those means. I, I'm not into Facebook that much, but I've I've looked at some of the Facebooks and it seems like every day you're at the beach. It's like the the pictures of the feet in the sand. They're always perfect family pictures, always finishing these beautiful home projects. You think Facebook would change if we rigged our phones to take a picture of us every five minutes? Catch that moment when I'm arguing with my wife or just exhausted by my kids. We like to put out a nice, sanitized version of ourselves out there and say, Nobody knows. God knows, He knows we're broken. He knows we're in desperate need of Him. We can't cover it up. What about religion? You may not want to run and hide from other people and you may want to do that by not being a part of a church, but how often do we think, you know what, if I'm just good enough, God will accept me. If I do enough, I can honor God enough. He'll be okay with me. As if we're going to bring all of our good works to God on the Day of Judgment and say, look at this, Lord. You guys know that even Mother Teresa will not be able to come before God and say, look at this, Lord. My 35 years in Calcutta. Look at all that I've done for You. We bring no resume to God. Nothing. We're broken and sinful. And there's nothing hidden from His sight. Hebrews 4.13 No creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him who we must give an account. Our relationship with Him is broken because of sin. Because of the fall. But our relationship with each other is also broken. And that's the next part of his passage. Look at verse 9 with me. Verse 9, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and hid myself. More evidence of a broken relationship, right? And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Now we need to stop here for a second because this is not God trying to play detective. It's not God trying to figure out what happens. This is a loving act of a good parent trying to bring his kids to repentance. You guys have done this, right? There about a month ago after Halloween we had some Halloween candy hidden in our hallway. And my, my daughter, Hope, liked to sneak in and like steal a piece of candy when we weren't looking. And one day, she, she stole a piece of chocolate, and it like smeared all over her face. And she walked out like nothing happened. I called her over and said, Hope, have you eaten any chocolate? You guys know the face, right? The eyes get big. And just, no, I haven't eaten any chocolate at all. Well, I know she ate chocolate. It's abundantly obvious to me. But I was trying to make sure that it was obvious to her that she was lying. That's what God's doing. He's trying to bring His children to repentance. Let's see how the man does. Look at verse 12. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with Me, she gave Me the fruit of the tree and I ate. He's really blaming two people there, isn't He? The woman, bone of My bone and flesh of My flesh, the one who I love the most, it's her fault. And by the way, God, it's Your fault for giving giving her to Me. You notice Adam blames everybody else but himself. Well, maybe he's right. Maybe he's not to blame. Let's look at chapter 3, verse 6. This is the temptation. This is what happened. Look at verse 6 with me. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took the fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was off praying by himself somewhere, right? No. Who was with her. He was right there. He had the opportunity to be the leader in the family to stand up and protect his wife from evil as God has made him to be. And he failed. And as soon as he's called out on it, he's like, it's them. It's not me. Blame shifting. Blame shifting happens. We'll see what the woman does. Verse 13, The Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The devil made me do it. Shifting blame once again. It's sad, isn't it? The relationships that were so close, the blessed relationship of a marriage, are torn in two because of sin. And that's not the only part that it's torn. It's also torn our parenting. Look at verse 16. Jump down to verse 16 as well. To the woman He said, this is the curse to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. And in pain you shall bring forth children. Now stop there for a second. This is not just giving birth. That's painful. I know you women can testify to that, right? It's, it is. But we're talking about raising kids. We we're raising little sinners who are going to battle us all the way. You guys know this to be True. Do you ever have to teach your kids to lie and cheat and steal? You have to say, "Just why don't you take it for yourself sometime? No, right? We, we try to fight those things every step of the way. And even our cute little babies, we have so many lovely little boys and girls around here, but they're cute little sinners. <laughs> they are. You know, there's, there's those two types of cries. One is, Dad, Mom, help. And the other one is, If I was bigger, I would hurt you right now. Right? You know it's true. Our relationship, even with our families, our wives, our husbands, our kids, it's broken and it doesn't end. They will battle us every step of the way. Because they're sinners and we're sinners. And the sad part is there's no focus on the family series. No boot camp. No parenting technique or... Medication that can take away their sin problem. It's an unfixable problem by us. But that's not where it ends. Look at the remainder of the curse to the woman at the end of verse 16. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, what this is talking about is the very roles that God has given man and woman are reversed. The husband is supposed to lead his wife graciously and kindly and care for her. And the woman was supposed to lead her family and submit to her husband lovingly and joyously. But now it's completely reversed. The woman will want to rule over the situation. She'll want to take charge and leave the man out of the picture and the, wo- and the man will rule unjustly. The very fabric of what it means to be a man and a woman is torn because of the fall. Parenting is torn because of the fall. And it doesn't end there, does it? In the very next chapter, we have the first human bloodshed in all of Scripture. And it's a brother killing a brother. And by the time we get to Noah, we have a whole generation of sinners that God wipes out. And it still doesn't fix the problem, does it? Even on into the New Testament, even to today, James 4 describes us like this. What causes quarrels? and what causes fights among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Our relationships with other people are broken because our hearts are broken. Our relationship with God is broken. And our relationship with everybody else is broken. And guys, it's no different today. We blame shift. We try to avoid... Responsibility every single turn, don't we? I mean, when was the last time you heard a politician come on TV and say, I'm wicked and evil and it's all my fault? Doesn't happen, right? I probably don't deserve your vote. I'm going to let you down, so vote for me. When was the last time we've heard that from anybody? I'm wicked and I'm evil and it's all my fault. Isn't it even hard to say that to the people we love? We even have the ability to blame shift in apologizing. I know I've done this. You guys ever said this? I'm sorry that you felt that way. <laughs> Is that an apology? Oh, it's, you're a little touchy. Right? What about this one? I'm sorry if you think that I hurt you. <laughs> Just get over it. Come on. I didn't hurt you. We blame shift even in our most loving and close uh, relationships. And it's the evidence that creation is broken because of sin. Our relationship with God and our relationship with others is broken. And our relationship with creation itself is also broken. Look at verse 17. This is the curse of the man. He said to Adam, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. The very ground that we walk on is now against us. So there's storms and tornadoes, and there will be people that die and suffer not because of human involvement. Because of illness and cancer. We're at war with creation itself. And in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. You're battling creation every step of the way. And even work itself, which was once a joy and a privilege to work for God, is now going to be against you. It's going to be hard. It's going to have problems. We know that's true, don't we? I mean, in our world, you're weird if you don't complain about your job. Hopefully, you're Christian. That's why you don't complain. Look at verse 23. This is the culmination of being kicked out of creation. Verse 23 Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden He placed cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. We're kicked out of God's place. The place of blessing where work was a joy. And we're kicked out to suffer. To suffer because we have a severed relationship with God. We're at war with each other and we're at war with creation itself. There's one more effect of the fall. Look at verse 19. Our relationship is broken even with ourselves, who we were meant to be. Verse 19 By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. The ultimate penalty of sin is death. We're all going to die. It's one of the most tragic things in our world. And even though we've all been affected by it, we tend to ignore it, deny it, trivialize it, laugh at it, or mock it and put skeletons and tombstones on our lawn at Halloween as if it's funny. But death is this penalty for sin. And guys, you know that there's nothing like death that screams that there is something wrong with this world. It ruins the best of plans. And it's a curse from God, a wrath of God because of the fall. But that's not where it ends. We've also died spiritually. We're no longer the perfect image bearers of God anymore. We're broken from the inside out. In fact, that's the cause of most of our war. Ephesians 2 says this You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among you whom you all once lived in the passions of the flesh carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind and were by nature our nature is changed nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind we no longer honor God like we should We're slaves to sin. Guys, that's the depth of our depravity. We have a broken relationship with our Father, our Creator, broken relationships with each other, with creation itself, and even ourselves are broken. and We will lead to death. Sin is our biggest problem. Do you believe that? Do you believe that sin is really your only problem you know i don't i don't know if we do because when you're confronted with difficulty and sin in your life where do you run do you run to god's solution in christ or do you look for a temporary substitute do you try to fix yourself the fig leaf again When we have marital problems, do we depend on communication techniques and seminars and more date nights? When we have parenting problems, do we just look to the, the next parenting book or more discipline or just change the type of schooling? We have health problems, do we look for a new diet or weight loss technique or more exercise? And financial problems, do we just get a new job or a new boss or a new savings technique? Or when there's political problems, do we look for a new candidate or new laws or just let's move to a different state? Guys, there's nothing inherently wrong in this. Don't don't hear me say that. The problem are not with those things in themselves. The problem is when we run to those first instead of to Christ. And it shows us that we don't really get Christ, but most of all, we don't really get ourselves. We don't understand the depth of our depravity. We assume that we can fix ourselves. And we assume that the biggest problem is not from the inside in ourselves, in our sin, it's the circumstances. We're just like Israel. And one of the things that always baffled me about Israel is the triumphal entry. You guys remember that? When Jesus comes to town on the donkey, people are laying down their coats and these these branches, and all of them are yelling what? You guys remember? Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. God save us. And then a week later, that same crowd is yelling, crucify Him. How How is that possible to go from God save us to crucify Him? In a week Right? Well, it's because when when Jesus finally got into Jerusalem, He started talking about sin. He started talking about payment for that sin and that they couldn't do it with themselves. And they said, put Him on the cross. What we meant when we wanted God to save us was God save us from these Romans. Get them out of our country so we can worship You. I'm okay sin-wise. I have the law. I can fix myself. But get, get our circumstances fixed. God My sin is not my biggest problem. Where are we going to be in a week? We're seeing God save us. Christ is my only hope. In a week, in a day, are we going to be saying, God, save us from my spouse. Save me from my kids, my job. Fix my situation, God. Or are we going to say, save me from my sin? I hope this morning that you see you're in desperate need of a solution to your sin problem we need a savior and the glorious news of christmas is that jesus didn't come to fix our situation he came to do battle with our biggest problem with sin and satan and evil the the really only problem we have it's the root of every other problem And as 1 John 3.8 says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. To free us from the curse and the bondage and the curse. And Jesus does this by becoming a curse for us. And we see the promise of that right in the curse itself. Amazing that God in the midst of the curse deals out grace. Look at verse 15. Wonderful promise of God which lasted for years God is cursing the serpent he says this I will put enmity I will put struggle battle war between you Satan and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and what God is saying look man and evil man and Satan will not be on the same side I'm going to cause division there I am going to make two lines of people in this world I am going to make those who are of Satan The spawn of Satan, as Jesus even calls the Pharisees in the New Testament, right? They say they do just like their father and lie. And I'm going to make those who are of Christ this new creation, this new group of people who will honor God. They will do battle for years and years. There will be conflict and difficulty because of sin. But where does it all end? Look at the next part of the verse. Offspring will battle offspring, but He... One person, not plural anymore, he shall bruise your head, Satan. There will be a man coming from the woman to crush Satan. He will bruise your head, and you, Satan, shall bruise his heel. God promises in the midst of fallen humanity and the difficulty of life, I will send a Savior. I will send someone who will suffer and bear the curse and crush Satan. Theologians call this verse the the Proto-Evangelion, which means the, the first gospel of God. The first promise of God. And I love what Sinclair Ferguson says about this. He says the whole Bible is an extended footnote of that verse. That's God's plan. That's God's solution to our fallen condition. And it's played out all through Scripture. And see, Adam and Eve actually believe this. We see the evidence. Look at verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of the living. Did you catch that? She was just given the curse just like Adam that you will die. But Adam says no. She may die physically, but through her offspring, there will be life. There will be victory over this fallen world. One will come to crush Satan and our hope is there. And so Eve, I'm going to name you that to remind us of that every single day. I love that. verse 21, God responds to their faith in such a gracious way. Look at verse 21. The Lord God, the covenant-keeping God, made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. The first bloodshed in the garden should have been Adam and Eve. But instead, God brings an innocent animal, sheds their blood to clothe Adam and Eve. Remember, all they had was fig leaves. God takes their ridiculous attempt to cover their shame. And God covers it Himself. In this beautiful picture that God says, you are not going to fix yourself. But I will clothe you. I will take care of you. And I will cover your shame for good. It's almost as if God is saying, look, you didn't trust Me the first time. You didn't trust I was good. So I'm going to tell you I was good and I'm going to show you I was good. And I am good forever. And that's what the Bible is. It's this massive campaign of show and tell. I am good, and let me show you. And we know that it doesn't end there. Adam and Eve trusted God in faith, but we get to look back on the the promise being fulfilled in Jesus. And we know exactly how the curse was taken. Right Where our relationship was broken with God, Jesus had His relationship broken with His Heavenly Father. In the passage that Jason read earlier, Isaiah 53, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. He has put Him to grief. When His soul makes an offering for guilt, He shall see His offspring, and He shall prolong His days. And as Jesus was on the cross, the point where He had His his heel crushed by Satan, bruised by Satan, we hear the cry, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? His relationship with God was severed because of sin. He didn't deserve it. We had our relationship with broken with God, but Jesus took that curse for us. He also had his relationship broken with others. John 1 10 and 11 says this. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. Rejected by men. And the ultimate rejection was putting Him on the cross. He even battled the brokenness of creation itself. Romans 8 says this, For the creation waits eagerly, longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Jesus came to set us free and all creation and lastly, his relationship was even broken with himself. He took on a whole different nature in a way. He became something that was contrary to the very idea of God himself. He died. Just get your, wrap your mind around that for one second. God died. Is there anything more contrary to God's nature than that? The eternal One took on death, and through that death He delivered us. Hebrews two nine. But we see Him who, from a little while, was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned Him with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. He bared blunt of the curse he bared God's judgment and even as Adam suffered with the thorns and thistles and sweat to work Jesus would go to the cross sweating blood taking the crown of thorns to do the work of God he bared it all he bared all the curse and through him the debt is paid but you know the amazing part about the gospel That's not it. That's not all. He paid our debt. He took the curse for us. But the glorious truth is that Jesus didn't just free us from the fall. He doesn't just get us back to the garden for a second chance. It's not God saying, "All right, Adam 2.0, Satan 2.0, let's see what happens. Alright, let's just see if we get it right this time. No, He takes us beyond the garden to a better place. It's the abundance of atonement. He pays our penalty in full, but He also gives us the righteousness we need to worship God forever. He does this by justifying us, by declaring us righteous through faith, and then He sanctifies us. He makes us righteous. So we're going to get home worshiping God forever. Listen to this quote from a favorite teacher of mine in college named Eric Taunus about this very thing. God says to us that I'm not just going to get you out of prison. I'm going to get you home. One of the cruel things about the way you get out of prison, at least in our society, is that they just dump you out on the street. That's why there's so much recidivism, Because people get right back into prison because they just get dumped out right where they get left off. Right back on the street. Not even a little help on the way out. And God says, I'm not just going to get you out of prison. I'm going to get you home. I'm going to get you home safe and sound and looking just like Jesus. And I'm going to be there with you on the way home. I'm not just going to give you directions. I'm going to drive the car. I'm going to make sure it happens. So we're at a weird state right now. Adam and Eve look forward to the coming of Jesus by faith. And we look back to the coming of Christ by faith. And the final blow is is sent to Satan. He's crushed. He has no victory. But God is making us righteous. And it's guaranteed. And it will end in worship better than before the fall. Listen to how it ends. This is Revelation 22. This is the, the end of all things. This is what we look forward to. Revelation 22, 1-3 through Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. This is John's vision. Brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb of God through the middle of the street and the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And listen to this verse. No longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and the Lamb of God will be in it, and his servants will worship him. You notice something missing there? Satan. Satan is done away forever. All those relationships are restored. Jesus was righteous on our behalf. He loved God in the way that we should have loved Him. And His righteousness is transferred to us by faith, so we have a restored relationship with our Father. We love others as we should have loved. Creation itself will be for us. And we will worship God from a pure heart. We will want what God wants. You know, we have to do self-control right now to worship God how we should worship Him. And s- and in heaven, self-control will be nothing. It's like the training wheels will be taken off. We worship God naturally as we should have done the whole time. That's the victory in Christ. And that's what our Savior has done. Let's pray. Father, what more could we think about around Christmas time that could be more important? You have done all that is necessary and more to lift us from the fall. To take away the curse and restore us to a right relationship with You that was so much better than even it was to begin with. Father, help us to trust You by faith. To worship You from that pure heart this morning knowing we have victory over Satan. Our biggest enemy through the cross And we are following you by the power of your Spirit. And we will see that ultimate victory one day when we worship you before the throne. We thank you for that wonderful grace. In your name we pray. Amen.